Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, this is Etienne Nichols, your co-host of the podcast. With me today is, of course, John Spear, the founder of Greenlight Guru, and Shannon Hosty, a very good friend of mine who is uh, the president of Agilis Consulting. And she, she has a lot of background, both with the FDA and a lot of med device experience, combination products, and human factors risk management. So I'm really excited to be here with Shannon today. Shannon, I'm sure I left something out, but do you want to speak to your experience a little bit if you like? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me today. I'm glad to be here. So I've worked in the med device combination product arena, primarily in product development side for about 25 years at this point and worked at Battelle and then went out to Intel to work on digital health, uh, Stryker to work on uh, product development, revamped the the uh, product development management system, uh, and then joined the FDA and ran the human factors team uh, there in CDRH and uh, came back into industry, uh, helped with the Lumina and the risk management process and and then Enable on uh, on body injectors and now uh, into consulting. So uh, it's been an exciting journey and I got to work on all sorts of different product types along the way. So it's been pretty exciting. Super cool. And I'll just mention Shannon and I actually worked together at one point. It was in a moment in my career when we were were going through some risk management and I was a little bit overwhelmed perhaps at the the spreadsheets. And uh, Shannon was the one who uh, inspired me to not give up on risk management. And now that I'm at Greenlight Guru, you know, I, I'm a true believer in the way Greenlight Guru approaches risk. And uh, a lot of that is sparked by uh, my experience with Shannon. So I'm super excited to be talking with you today. Excellent. Um, well, Eddie, I'm, I'm guessing at that point in, in your career, you were probably approaching risk uh, from a checkbox uh, point of view where, you know, this was an activity you, you had to get done. You had to check the box. You had to address it. It wasn't necessarily, I'm guessing I'm speculating here. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but probably wasn't a value add type of activity. It probably didn't go into it to, to learn uh, how can we improve upon our product and make it better. You know, I've been there too. And I think that's unfortunately so much of the industry is still there. They're still stuck there. Yeah, that's a good point. It was one of those things where we have the design, we're ready to go and we've, we've got a roadblock. We've got to finish this risk. So it was the exciting time because I got to, it was, it was team building in my mind and a very good learning process, but lock yourself in a room for eight hours. We're not leaving until it's done, right? That's right. So, and with that being said, so risk management, some, some people look at human factors, they're over here, risk management there, that's a separate team. And then you have product development and they're all a little bit disjointed. How do you, what, what's your philosophy or approach on that, Shannon? Any thoughts? So human factors at its core, at least the regulatory aspect of human factors is a risk management activity. It's all about use-related risk. And then the human factors world kind of um, morphs and merges into user experience and you know product optimization and all of that. But at the core, human factors is, is that risk management activity. And that's what the FDA is asking for. And that's what the international standards are asking for. When I think about risk management and, and human factors for that matter, and exactly to your point that you were just saying is all of it is a tool to guide development. I kind of think of risk management as the backbone of your product development, your product life cycle, I should say. And as you're 
you need to be working on those risk files early because they're they're helping you make design decisions. At the end of the day, your risk management file is a record of all your design decisions, with, especially with regards to safety and efficacy, right? And so human factors just provides a focused view on, on the user, on the user-related risk, and then a method for that to come back into your overall product risk. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, and I've talked in previous episodes where we've talked about human factors and the overlap or the compare and contrast mm-hmm. with risk and design controls. I mean, I think that too many people get too, too caught up. I mean, I like the way you said it a moment ago, Etienne, there, there's human factors, there's risk, there's product development and design controls. They're, they're kind of, you know, at least the way I look at it, they're, they're kind of all the same thing, but from a slightly different lens. Yep. Just a, a way to step back and look at the product because risk is all about doing the diligence and looking at the different perspectives, right? You have your design, you know, you do, you assess your design failure mode so that you can understand what risk they might lead to and um, process and same thing with use. And so it's, it's all about making sure you're catching all the lenses to understand what is your product risk, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I think about the standard, you know, the standard of 62366, the usability standard, it's as medical devices as it relates to safety. So even usability, I mean, it goes back to risk, even with that standard. So that makes a lot of sense. Yep. And, and actually that was a big focus and partially from the FDA driving on the latest, not latest, but the the latest major update of 62366, where it moved to the uh, the dash one and dash two, uh, the informative and the normative sections. So and and that was because that standard historically had a lot of guidance in it. It had information about ease of use and, and things kind of tangential to safety. And what the big push there was to, to move that 62366-1 to be a truly a safety standard and focus it on that use-related risk and then take all of that other information, which was good information, um, and put it in the dash two, um, which is more of the the informative then to support execution of human factors or usability engineering. So that's something that I, I, I'm not as familiar with the different parts. So I'm going to look back and see what uh, the different Mm -hmm. things are there. (laughs) I am curious. So you were at the FDA for a while. What does it look like from that side when you're looking through those submissions? What are you looking for from a human factor? You said you were the the lead of the the human factors team at the FDA. Is that correct? Yep. Yes. So how, how does that go? What are you looking for? What are the thoughts that go through the different teams? As a company, if I'm submitting something, what do I need to be thinking about? Yep, absolutely. So I'll I'll tell you, coming from industry, so I had about 20 years in industry before I went out there, or 18, I guess. And and there were a few things I noticed going from industry into, into CDRH specifically. One was that somebody had read all of those reports I had written over the years, right? You put a lot of your life into writing verification validation reports and, and so forth. Somebody reads those. So, so that was a little bit of validation. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I was like, all right. Uh, the second was that as I was reviewing the human factors and the risk management reports, it felt like I had a blinders on, like a filter that I didn't experience in writing the reports. And, and that mean it being that as I'm reading this report, I'm trying to frame all of the data through the lens of how does this help me understand if this supports safe and effective use, right? When you're writing those reports, you're writing that, but you have all sorts of other noise. You have your deadlines, you have your you know, budget constraints, you have uh, study concerns, all sorts of things going on that are factors of getting that report and getting that report done. But when you're reviewing it, you're just looking for safety and efficacy data. That's it. 
All the rest is noise. And so the better that is laid out, the easier it was to review and get to the the core issues and say, okay, here's the three things that that are concerned, you know, I'm concerned about by from reviewing the risk data. And then you could dig into the report and say, okay, here's where that was evaluated and here's why it supports safe and effective use, how those mitigations are effective, right? But if if it wasn't clear, if there was a lot of other details or if it wasn't clearly laid out all of the data, then it could be difficult to one, find the, the main concerns. And so it may be a question of, you know, I, I don't feel like I have enough information to even say that everything's been addressed. Um, here's the questions I have, but I can't see where in all of this data that's been addressed. So those are kind of the things that would lead then to questions back um, an IR or or a deficiency, right? Where you're, there are some specific safety concerns and they aren't being addressed somehow in the data. I think it's interesting. I mean, I've been in industry for, well, since the late 90s. I mean, in those early 15, first 15, 10 or 15 years or so, industry and, and FDA, I would say the relationship was somewhat contentious. It wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. like a collaborative in any way, shape or form. I mean, it was usually industry would, that company would prepare submission, throw it over the wall to FDA, cross their fingers and wait, you know, and yep. uh, there was not a lot of exchange of information. Any exchange of information generally was was nonverbal. It was through snail mail correspondence, even. Um, <laughs> and so I'm encouraged. Like today, there's a lot more collaboration. I mean, I'm such a huge fan of things like like a pre submission, for example. Yep. But you know, if I get to a point where I'm, you know, I'm at the submission time frame and I've submitted what I thought was applicable and appropriate and sufficient, you know, for that 510k or whatever the the, the submission. And then you're getting it at FDA and you're like, oh, wow, they did, I really don't have, I, I don't have, I don't feel like they've addressed the safety and efficacy or this or that. You know, for me, I'm like thinking I'm days away from launch and now this might put me back in a much earlier stage or phase of development. So I think there's still opportunity and still things that we can, can improve upon as far as that relationship between uh, industry and FDA. I mean, just curious, what, what, how did you, are there things that, that you're, you're aware of you know, from the agency side that we could do a better job of on the industry side so that when we get to that point, uh, you know, we're, it's, it's smoother sailing, you know, are there other mechanisms besides the pre-sub that we can engage the agency on? Yeah, I, well, I think um, in my experience, particularly with CDRH, um, they would, they strove to be very interactive um, as, as much as they could, right, um, within the paradigm of, of the regulatory review. The, the other piece, though, is that that's once you're in, in a regulatory review or a pre-sub, right? Um, but they also, there's a lot of uh, speaking engagements where the FDA is, is available and approachable to talk. You can't talk about specific issues, but you can get an idea of what concern areas are, are happening and such. But also on the there's a lot of information on the FDA website. It's not always necessarily easy to find, but it's there beyond just the guidance documents, right? There, there's a search tool to search up the guidance documents, but there's there's also a lot of other information there, even on um, past submissions and so forth. So uh, digging around even in there can, can be helpful. Um, yeah, and then absolutely. for small businesses, there's uh, specific um, forums and things that are, that, uh, are presented well, uh, webcasts that are presented on um, uh, on reg- the regulations and on you know Im- implementation execution right of of uh, getting a product approved and clear cleared yeah 
Because I can imagine from your perspective, when you would receive this information, this human factors information for a submission and you're reviewing it, like, oh, man, they missed this. This isn't clear. Uh, what, what's going on here? I mean, that's that you don't want to be the bearer of bad news, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it you was hard do your and job. I, yeah. <laughs> that was actually the, the part that was probably the most difficult for me personally as an engineer, right? You like to dive in and solve problems, right? And so you could see things and you're just like, oh, if you could just look at it this way and, and yeah. right. you know, so close. So, so yeah, that was uh, sometimes challenging to see. But I, I think another challenge on the human factors side is that human factors team consulted out to everybody. So, so one of the, the few teams that, that kind of did that and touched the different divisions and now offices across CDRH. And so what that means is that reviewer is looking at that HF data and they have access to the full file, but you know, they're reviewing Hanabi, we are uh, from, from CDRH FDA presented and, and was saying that I believe it was 45 reviews a month. I remember that that number that's similar to to what I had experienced there. And so that is, uh, you know, that team varies from three to five people. So three people, that's 15 reviews a month. Mm -hmm. That's that's a lot of content. Those can be, you know, anywhere from 50 to uh, 1100 pages, right, (laughs) to get through. So having that data uh, concise in a report, particularly for the HF section, so not not saying, hey, this is off in the risk management file, this is off in this file, just having it and telling that clear, concise story of, of how that usually risk has been evaluated is pretty important to wow. getting that yeah, done efficiently. That is a lot of work. That, so I'm curious if we could go one layer deeper, um, all those different things that you saw, what are some common pitfalls that you see companies getting into maybe as it relates to HF, anything come to mind specifically? I think that at the core of it, and again, this was, this shows up in the stats that Dr. Weaver presented as well, is the main a contributor to deficiencies or questions and human factors is the usually risk assessment itself, which makes sense when you when you have an appropriate model of human factors. What do I mean by that? <laughs> Let me back up a second. Okay. Uh, human factors is a process, just like risk management. And in my mind, very similar to the software development lifecycle from the standpoint of you are implementing it early, you're understanding what are the potential risks, you're, you're understanding that all of the users, uses, use environments, all the things that contribute to use-related risk. You're performing the risk assessment, identifying what use errors can happen, what problems can occur, and then what what hazards does that create and what are the potential harms, right? And then you're screening through that and saying, okay, here's all of the potential use errors that can happen and the harms that could result from that. And based on severity, what are the things that could lead to high severity harm? I'm going to look at those in my human factors process and I'm going to dig in and I'm going to, to um, create a simulated use test where I'm exposing people to that piece of the interface and see if they understand, if I'm, if I'm giving them enough information or if I'm putting something in there to trip them up. If I have a big green stop button, <laughs> right? <laughs> then no one knows what it's for. Right. Um, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, and, and then... Um, and then your final evaluation is just saying, okay, if I did all of my research, I know what I need to look at, and then I'm going to evaluate that. And my validation is going to look at all of those. And um, and then I'm going to go through each and everything I saw in that study, just like I would a software anomaly. I'm going to go through each and everything I saw in that study and evaluate what's, why did it happen? What's the root cause? And do I need to do anything about it? Does it need to be fixed? 
before I can move forward? Or is it is it okay as is? And so forth. So um, like the software process, it's that, what do I need to focus on? What did I see? And one by one, what do I need to do with it, right? What I saw in my experience and what I, I see in, in uh, Dr. Brewer's presentation was if that URA is incomplete, then I don't know that anything after that is sufficient, right? So if if my URA is incomplete and doesn't identify everything that could potentially be of a concern, then my validation study is never going to be fully scoped, right? And so so that can be a big concern when when that happens. The other thing is that whole probability thing trips people up in that, you know, to understand product risk, I need to understand risk is the probability times the severity, right? Yeah. And so so that at product risk level, I need to understand that, but at the what's driving the human factors level, I need to look at anything that could lead to high severity harm, regardless of if it doesn't happen that often, if it's going to kill someone, then I want to understand it, right? And so so it's it's really a kind of a safety critical system approach um, to looking at, at isolated risk. And then all of those activities that inform the human factors process, right? That isolated risk and severity drives the scope of my human factors work. That same data can then inform my product level risk in where I can start to, just like with software, where I can start to understand probability and occurrence at my product risk level, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the way you mentioned that, if your URA is not scoped appropriately, your validation will never be completely comprehensive. Well, that to me says you need to bring that right up alongside product development and they've got to be partners from the very beginning. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense. To me, just to build on that, I mean, it's, I mean, part of what I've seen over the years is, is there's poor definition or poor understanding of of user needs. You know, what is this? Usually, I mean, like, it seems like somebody knows what problem they're trying to solve with a, with a product, but they don't dive in and, and really understand what's important from, from the end user perspective, whether that be the patient or the clinician or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And then, you know, as we've talked a little bit already, that risk, the, the first time I dive into risk oftentimes is mid or, or very late stream in the process. Whereas, you know, if I'm doing that more at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, doing some sort of preliminary hazard analysis or, or risk assessment of some sort with that user, you know, in mind, uh, more on the front end, man, that's so much more helpful because it informs everything that I need to do. And it identifies the gotchas, it identifies my unknowns and, and really gives me a roadmap to to make my product development process much smoother. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's one of those those things in life and in product development in general, where when you when you see it executed well, early on, it guides development, it informs the activities, it really creates from the beginning your priority list of where you need to focus your attention, right? Seeing that done well and early in a project, it, it is so valuable. And, and then trying to help people understand that, right? If they haven't done that, and if they haven't seen it executed well early on and how much that impacts the success of the project, it's exciting to see. It's an exciting tool. And, and just seeing people, I, I love to, I, I teach as well with Pathway for Patient Health in the quality science curriculum. And um, one of the courses is risk management and being able to teach that and, and help people understand some of those concepts so that they can start to think through that. Um, it's just exciting to me because I know it can be so effective. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think of the, uh, the phrase, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't mean to just get on the green light guru, you know, talk about, but 
you know, in my past uh, several different companies I've worked for, um, we'll have different Excel spreadsheets where your uh, design controls and your risk management are two different Excel spreadsheets. You have a hard time keeping track of this hundred, several, you know, we have some customers who have thousand line risk management files. So if you take, take that with the Excel versus what we have with Greenlight Guru, where you can actually connect and link those things. And there's an in, informative feedback loop. It's very helpful um, from what I've seen. It's one of, one of the reasons I'm still here at Greenlight Guru is, is I'm such a believer in that, in the software. And so I just, yeah, we, should, we use these tools, these tools, you know, really shape how we, how we approach work. You're making me think there when I, when I think back and something you had mentioned earlier, John, around how, so I'm, I'm systems engineer is kind of how my my brain works <laughs> in my training. And so by that, I mean, I was at Battelle, um, which uh, we had a medical device group where he did consulting, but also um, they do a lot of other other work that has a very, very much systems engineering approach. What I was running into was uh, I would get user needs from clients, like it needs to be made of honest materials and it needs to be blue. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do with that? Right. Yeah. Um, what does that mean? Uh, and so digging in and understanding what does, what does honest mean? What do they truly need? Right. And then, you know, it might be that it's inconspicuous because they need to use it in public, or it might be that, you know, it's, it's a life sustaining product and they want it to feel high quality. Right. And, and then what does that mean? You know, and, and just working through all of those details and understanding that. And then the other piece is seeing field failures where a device failed and it fractured, couldn't figure out why. Turns out people were lubricating it with butter or motor oil. And so the plastics were fracturing because plastics and oils don't get along. And, and then I was a bit paralyzed at that time, to be honest, of how do I write requirements? How do I do risk assessments when anybody could do anything <laughs> and I just need to make it blue, right? And, <laughs> and honest, what, what, how do I put all that together? And, you know, and that's where I started to study cognitive systems engineering um, at Ohio State, which I could walk to from, from Battelle, and piece together how to understand the user as part of that system. So it's just taking your system boundaries and stretching it out to include the user and then understand all the interactions um, between your product and the user. Systematically walk through, understand what can go wrong and, and how to account for it based on what we know about human behavior. So, so, so that's kind of... The things you were mentioning is, you know, we do have ways of starting to understand and break those things down. It's just a matter of of, of following that process and um, and having the tools to do it, just like you mentioned. So in, in that case, again, it was in a large organization um, with a large system background. So our tool of choice was doors, right? Yeah. Which, you know, worked well when we had it customized for what we did. But it was a, it's a big lift, right? Yeah, and, and that's a monster tool. Yeah, I mean. yeah, and you have to have people focused on just using it, right? Yeah. So, so as an engineer, you could run, you know, you know, do that, but but you're you're not involved in all of the other project aspects. So when once I left Battelle and was working at other places, you know, that wasn't really a feasible option um, to bring into uh, different organizations. It's not really, it, it didn't fit well, and so. So it was always, uh, do you continue to work with Excel sheets or do you find a tool that helps you tie all of that together? Because it's all interrelated. And every time you pull on one string, it's, it's if I pull on a, a usability fix, is it impacting my product risk in some other way or my design risk, my design failure modes and, and so forth. So, um, so that's where I've, I've been a, um, a big fan of Greenlight Guru and the, and the 
content that you're putting out as well as the tool um, for that purpose, because it, it provides a, a tool to bring all of that together. Um, yeah. So valuable. Yeah. No, I, thank you. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, looking back early in my career, I mean, the, it's like, a, it always felt like a little bit like a race, you know, I'm, I'm first job that I had was with a, you know, decently large medical device company. And my role was a product development engineer. So I was given uh, the concept or the idea, sometimes a prototype, sometimes a, a cocktail napkin sketch and, mm -hmm. and a pretty generic explanation of, of the problem that this product was, was hoping to solve. And then I was like, I went heads down and went into almost like an isolation mode, right? It's like, Oh, what are all the requirements? And then, you know, I might look at some mm -hmm. other products that were similar and that sort of thing. But, um, but rarely did I circle back with, with the, uh, you know, end users or, you know, the, the, uh, at that phase. I, mm -hmm. I And I don't think there was a lot of emphasis, you know, th definitely not then not. And probably not, not so much even now on what are user needs. Like you said, usually it was things like, Oh, it's gotta be blue. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's infinite shades of blue. Come on. Uh, but, but I should have been, you know, you know, the, the older me could have applied some of the, these things earlier on in my life. Like why does it have to be blue? Oh, okay. Why? You know, using just simple techniques, like why, yeah. why, why? But, yeah. <laughs> so, I, you know, it does seem like, I think a lot of times engineers, I'm, I'm picking on engineers that I can do so because I am one. And I think the two of you would agree with this. <laughs> we sort of get like, single track mind, you know, very focused, like got to get the requirements done. And then I just do that. Mm -hmm. and one thing I'll, like I'll add to the, to, sorry, to, to add to that though, is um, risk management and development of user needs. It feels, uh, you know, as an engineer in me, I like uh, materials. I like solid things I could touch, measure, quantify. Um, some of those feels like you have to apply a certain amount of art. And uh, I don't know if that's been the case or your experience, Shannon, or, and that's one of those things that's hard. How do you teach a creative mindset to, or, or a solid mindset to become more creative and uh, actually create those things that, that can be validated. Do you have any tips or tricks that can help your human factors team upstream all the way through the process? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think um, part of it's a challenge and I found that people either love working with the, in that human factor space um, or, or, or they really struggle with the whole qualitative aspect of it, or it's very frustrating to them. Um, but um, I, I think, and, and exactly to the point earlier brought up, was that it's engineers, we like to solve problems, right? We're going to jump in and we're going to look for solutions. Um, and I think the, the human factors, the user needs work as well, is all about understanding the problem. Mm. and not solving it. So so the trick is keeping yourself out of solution space and and just trying to explore what is what is that problem put parameters around it mm. so that when you do move into solution space you have that context so you can start to pull those pieces together then you can start to see oh if these three things come together this is something that will address all of that you know kind of thing. Um but I think it's really important I'm, to just jump in as I say I mean in a in a maybe a weird twisted sort of way, it kind of, if an engineer were to think about it in that context, it would satiate what makes them tick, find more problems exactly. to solve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That. Better understand that problem. Come up with a, yeah, exactly that. And that's why, I, what I find so exciting about it too. 
<laughs> I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but it made me think of the phrase, the heart of the problem is the seed of the solution. I always go back to that. Yep. And it's, that's, that's exactly Absolutely. right. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice. Um, so, and, and, and similar when you're actually getting in and diving in, working through the details, right? Working in the spreadsheets. Um, and I say useful rated risk assessment, that's more of an FDA coined term. It's really, it's very similar to like a, a use FMEA. So it's just taking and identifying use errors and then, you know, what could result from that use error and so forth. Um, but as you're walking through that tool and, and like I just mentioned, staying out of solution space, it's, it's really good to walk through it stepwise. First, identify all of the tasks. Don't think any further about them, just identify them. And then think about what can go wrong at each step. Again, don't start thinking about how to prevent it or, um, or what could happen, you know, what could be the outcome hazard or harm from that. Just identify what can go wrong. If, uh, if I need to, I don't know, I'll go simple. Remove a cat from a pen, what can go wrong? I could not remove it. Um, I could not be able to remove it, um, you know, you know, just breaking it down. And what does that mean? Maybe nothing, maybe something. If it's a, an epinephrine injector, then it's pretty important, right? Um, and so, so just kind of trying to stay focused in those columns as you add to it and you build that information up, that then builds that landscape for you to then step back and look at solutions. Um, so just, I guess, if you wanted advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really good. Um, well, that's great. I, John, did you have anything else or any other thoughts or questions? This seems like a good spot, but go ahead. No, I'm yeah. good. I, I've enjoyed the, I always enjoy talking about this um, topic because, well, t there's just so much confusion, uh, unnecessary mm -hmm. confusion. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, I think for a lot of people, um, the, what I interpret the confusion is, is they, it's almost like they interpret this as a unique uh, almost disjointed discipline that's in addition to all the other things yeah. that I need to be doing. And it's like, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's the same. I mean, it's, it's just a slightly different context. It's looking, it's really actually emphasizing to your point, Shannon, what's important from, from the use of this product uh, and, and mm -hmm. making sure I like what you said earlier about making sure that, that I'm focusing on safety and efficacy, safety mm -hmm. and efficacy. Yep. Um, which you know, that's a big part of what we should be doing as uh, when we're designing and developing medical devices. They're safe and they work, you know, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. it makes sense. Just a lens for that. Um, the, the other piece I think trips people up a lot is they think of it as a test, a validation test, right? Because that's the end of the day, it's kind of the end of the evidence pool. And when a lot of folks, particularly medical device, when you think of testing, you're thinking of verification testing, you're thinking of, you know, 95% confidence, 95% probability kind of testing, right? right? Um, reliability testing, and it's not that. It's, um, and again, I, I go back to the cor corollary with software. It's, you're putting it through its paces, you're doing a dry run of what it's gonna be like post-market and making a list of potential issues that you see and evaluating them piece by piece and saying, okay, here's my, Here's my bug list, my anomalies that are left in my user interface that can cause harm. And here's what I need to do about them or why they're okay. And so that's the bulk of the validation assessment. It's not a, a pass-fail kind of thing. And I think that that can get um, confusing if it's not understood yeah. as well. So I came to the industry as a mechanical engineer prior. So 
prior to being in the medical device, I was aerospace for a little while, you know, and there was ergonomics, usability and things like that. Um, so I came to the medical device kind of with different eyes. Um, mm. I'm curious, do you, do you see the more of a blending of the human factors or do you think it, uh, it will always be kind of its own division or do you think it's going to be pulled more into the product development and, and mindset? Any thoughts? I know as, as a consultant, you work with a lot of different companies now. Yeah, it's it's gotten better. Um, so I've been working in this space. Uh, started out in in human factors in the late '90s, um, and and it was very similar to what John was explaining. Of it just wasn't really on the radar, um, and it really didn't get traction until, in my experience, till the FDA started asking for it. So I think it's unique from that standpoint of. You design controls, all comes out, and in R&D, you experience it through your audits and your inspections. A lot of the push on HF has actually been from a pre-market review standpoint. So it's coming in through your regulatory group rather than your quality group. I think I've been thinking yeah. around that a lot lately. <laughs> um, what kind of dynamic does that cause? Um, and so they're saying this data is needed for a submission, and then that's then pushing back to development to build it as they go. And so what I... And, I think I'm seeing anyway is that uh, companies were then being asked, they had to have this data, and then they started to learn that, oh, hey, this is this is beneficial, and the earlier I do it, the more valuable it is, right? And um, and so it's it's been growing in more to be more part of that product development process in general over time. I, I don't know that it's fully integrated, and I think part of that is some of that confusion and understanding of how it actually wraps into risk management and product development process. And so forth. So, well, what do you I think? think it is interesting to hear your experience about how uh, the RA side is is fueling a lot of this. Um, but it make, kind of makes sense at the same time, right? They're they're they have a job to complete, and mm-hmm. you know, they they have they're the quote owner of that regulatory submission. And if this is an obstacle for them to complete that job, I can understand how they're fueling that. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. but at the same time, it is discouraging. I mean. Uh, I, I hope we're on a path and I've seen a lot of improvements just in the past you know, decade or so where we're so much better as an industry and in, in really understanding the role human factors plays in our design and development. But man, I, I, there's still a, lot, a long way to go. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. and so the more I think we can help spread the word is it's not that bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is actually, it's actually helping. It's actually helping. Uh, I mean, every product development, just about every product development engineer that I knew or have known in my career, they want their device to be safe. They want it to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually, uh, if you embrace human factors, this is a, a mechanism or a vehicle that that helps in, in, improve that that as a, a likelihood. So you know, yep. lead into it instead of resist yep. it. Absolutely. And the other thing I've noticed or, or thought about is the, the work that Human Factors is doing is is optimizing your product for for effective use, right? Um, that will happen regardless of whether you drive it in development or whether you wait for your customer to give you that feedback and do the next gen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? I mean, who wants to manage all these complaints when you launch a product? <laughs> right. So it will happen. It's just a matter yeah. of whether you're uh, investing early in and doing some of that research up front or whether you're just going through product iterations to get there. Um, I mean, but who really wants to roll that dice, right? Let's assume right. You, you ignore, you know, the benefit of human factors during development. You launch a product base and, and you get into market and now you start dealing with all these complaints and all this, this feedback and, you know, God forbid, maybe even some MDRs. 
now you know you've got some some uh bruises and maybe some black eyes with that product so it's gonna make it difficult to to you know yeah you got the message now because you're dealing with all these complaints but that's a painful way to do it yep Yep. yeah well I think uh, I think every engineer it should be almost mandatory to read that design of everyday things. You know, just like you mentioned earlier, the, what about that green stop John button? Norman. You know, that's, yeah. uh, that's <laughs> terrifying to think about. So, yeah, um, yeah exactly. And I think that's one. a great point. I mean, think about all, all the products we use in our everyday lives. I mean, some of them are like, oh, wow, this, this just <laughs> doesn't fit in my hand very well and or whatever mm-hmm. the case may be. I mean, you know, I think... You, we know when there's bad design uh, and, and bad user experience more so than maybe we appreciate good user experience. But sometimes yeah, like you'll, you'll figure out something and you're like, or you'll, you'll be holding a product or using a product like, oh, wow, that was amazing, right? And yeah. I think we as medical device product developers, I think sometimes we forget that there are humans who use our products. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, they're not- They're not all engineers. <laughs> they're not all engineers, yeah. Uh, and, and, and the products aren't, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, in, in our everyday environment, right? Sometimes they are mm-hmm. in an operating room and that sort of thing. So, but they're still humans that use products. They still want a good experience. They still, you know, want to, to know that that product that they're using, that, that it's familiar to them and that it functions and all these sorts of things. So I think if we just realize that, you know, they're, we're designing products for humans. So, you mm-hmm. know, we like humans that we use products every day. Some have great user experiences. So how can we replicate that in the things that we're designing and developing? Yep, absolutely. Use them every day when we're tired, when we're dealing with all sorts of constraints, when, you know, maybe kids are around us or, <laughs> pets yeah. or whatever, whatever's going on in life. Um, we need to be able to use our products too. So, yeah, I've, I've had conversations with my wife who is a, uh, critical care nurse so she she was working nights and you know you, you want your uh, mm-hmm. night shift nurse to to be able to do what she needs to do uh, or he and uh, she would ask me about some different things and I might be able to explain well they probably designed it that way because the injection mold was this or that and and uh, she's like well I don't care and that's true you know when you're when you're <laughs> yep. frustrated you you don't care why it was designed away you want it you want it to be designed correctly so it's a good yeah. point <laughs> well cool it was so good talking to you Shannon uh, do you Let's see. How can we find more about your company and what you do? Agilist? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm an Agilist Consulting Group and the president um, of the group. And so we run uh, consulting focused purely on human factors regulatory um, perspective for med device and pharma. So we we work to stay connected with all of the standards so that we can help and we can be, we can have, we have the deep dive into the regulatory strategy around human factors so that our clients don't have to, we can support that, them with that. Um, and then running studies and all the other fun stuff too. So, um, so you can find us on, uh, on the website or on LinkedIn. Okay. And we'll put the link in the show notes as well. So, yep. Yep. yeah. And the other, the other place I, I my, my uh, second job <laughs> is uh, <laughs> pathway for patient health. Um, it's a second job as a, as a kind of a passion job. Um, and so there it's a program for students in sciences at universities, uh, free for st- any student globally. Um, to take and get a certificate. It's a five, um, five course curriculum um, to study um, legal regulatory requirements of med device and pharma, um, process development, validation, risk management. And, um, and yeah, and we just walk uh, students through. I, we've got uh, students from five continents. I think I have 90 wow. students this semester. So it's pretty exciting um, to reach out and then have been for about... Um, 
enough, far enough in now that people have completed the program and we've seen where they've been able to uh, move into the industry and such too. So, so that's exciting too. Okay. Excellent. We're going to have to get a link to your passion project as well. That's that, that sounds yeah. exciting. So, <laughs> very cool. Well, it was a good, good talking to you. Did you have any last comments or last words for our audience? Any suggestions, tips, anything like that? Come no, use you for last, human my, factors, right? <laughs> no, yeah, my last one is just that that point we made earlier is is it uh, your product will be evaluated for human factors. So it's whether you're doing it or your, your customers are doing it. So that's good advice. Yeah. No. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast powered by Greenlight Guru, the only medical device success platform to meet your uh, specifically designed for medical devices. So if you're interested in learning more, go to greenlight.guru or of course, check the show notes to learn more about Shannon and what she's doing. All right. Thank you all. Take Thank care. You. Bye.